past few times that we've been together, we have been looking at the goodness of God. And in a number of different ways, we began by talking about the fact that God is good and is essential being from Exodus chapter 33. Moses said, show me your glory. And so the living God said, I will make all of my goodness pass in front of you. There really is an inherent glory to God's goodness. We also talked about the fact that God is good in creation. God saw all that he had made. It was good. And then we discovered in Genesis chapter 3 that God is good to rebels. The Lord God said, what is this that you have done? Because the whole creation was spun into ruin. And God's response was so good. I will crush the serpent's head, which is a prophecy anticipating the time when Jesus would come and accomplish on the cross what we're going to talk about today. Number four, we talked about the goodness of God in redemption, Titus chapter 3, but when the outrageous goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he did something. He saved us. And then fifth, God displayed his infinite goodness in the sending of Jesus the Son from Hebrews chapter 1. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he is the upholder of all things. He upholds the entire universe simply by the word of his power. It's all it takes. God speaks, something happens. Today we're going to talk about the, uh, the infinite goodness of God as it's displayed on the cross here in Psalm 22. That is that he has done it. Now in your notes, you'll have a little diagram that is uh, reflective of the structure, I think, of the psalm, the flow of it. It begins with distress, utter distress, those haunting words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of us have been there, or perhaps will be. And it moves from distress down through the passage to verses 14 and 15, where Jesus is in the dust of death, and things are very bleak. And things are very difficult and they're very dark. And then it begins to move towards triumph, which it will end up at at the end of Psalm 22. Celebration and triumph with these words, he has done it. And so essentially there are three movements in the passage. Number one, the, uh, the righteous servant suffers and he does it triumphantly. He does it well. It's one thing to suffer. It's another to do it well. And God calls us to suffer well. Number two, Jesus, the righteous God, speaks triumphantly. In other words, he talks to himself in the midst of his suffering, and he discovers in the midst of that that there is hope, and that hope is Yahweh himself. And then thirdly, the righteous God saves triumphantly, gloriously. He is going to save the bottom line. He has done it. He's done what no one else can do. He's done what you cannot do. He's done what I cannot do. There's only one who could do it. It is the Lord Jesus himself. And so the first part of, of the psalm is dark and it's troubling. And hang in there with me as we process through that part. Because in the end, it will end in triumph. Now about application. As uh, you study through this passage and think through it, there are different opinions on who was the focus of the passage. And uh, some commentators believe that the lament was for David himself certainly included David, um, anyone who, have, who feels abandoned by God would certainly take hope and comfort from this psalm. But Psalm 22 also points to the Christ, obviously so, it's Christological, 
And the evidence for that is that it's quoted so often in the passage or the passage uh, passion narratives in the New Testament. But thirdly, it really does speak to anybody who has suffered, anybody who's going through those dark times where in our deepest soul, we may not articulate it, but it's there. We cry out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? And so uh, Dr. Boyce calls it the uh, Psalm of the Cross. I think he's right. I think the focus really is on the Savior himself. But by application, it, it really does apply to all of us, including David and to the Messiah and to every believer. And then finally, um, as we think through this and as we say this statement of all that God could have done for us, nothing displayed his infinite goodness to us as did the cross of Jesus Christ. We are not saying that the cross in and of itself was good. It was not good. It was treacherous. It was vulgar. It was the worst crime of all of history. So in and of itself, there's nothing sacred about the cross. We can wear them and hang them on our ears and on necklaces and put them on walls, but there's nothing sacred, nothing Now, there's something sacred about the cross, but there's nothing in and of itself that's intrinsically good about the cross. But what we are saying is that what the cross accomplished was incredibly good. And we will rejoice forever in what our Lord has done. What's glorious about the cross is this. He has done it. He has done it. And in that, we rejoice. Well, we're looking at three triumphs of the cross today in Psalm 22. And the first triumph is this, that Jesus, the righteous God, suffers. He suffers sacrificially, unjustly, but he suffers, and he suffers triumphantly. It will be helpful, by the way, for you to have your Bibles open as we process down through this. We did read selections for the scripture reading, but we're going to read every single verse as we work down through it, and so keep that in mind. Number one, Jesus, the righteous God suffers sacrificially. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the question of the ultimate sufferer. We're talking about the triumph of the sufferer in in at least four different movements. Uh, These are the same movements that every single person who suffers must process through if we are going to come out on the other side and say, praise God. These four movements. The first one is the cry. It's a legitimate cry. Jesus is not guilty. There is no reason on earth why he should be hanging on a cross, but he is. Verse 1 and 2, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And I cry by night, but I find no rest. Most all people will be here at some point in their experience or have already been here. Most of us will process through this misery of suffering. The words kind of shatter any of the uh, mistaken ideas we have about life being happy apart from the living God. Uh, All of it reflects back to the Garden of Eden when things were really great, but they haven't been ever since. And it looks at the agony and the anguish of life apart from the living God. But this particular cry is different from all of the rest. It's not the cry of, you know, why didn't I win the lottery? It's not that kind of a cry. 
It's not the cry of why didn't the Phillies win yesterday or whenever they played last. Not that kind of a cry. This is the cry of God the Son as he experiences physical death, spiritual separation, and it is the most desperate cry in the universe. Now, I've got to believe that on the day when Jesus died on the cross and he spoke those words, that the whole universe had to catch its breath. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's one of life's most excruciating questions asked by an totally no, a totally noble and innocent sufferer and is the question, question why? <laughs> and so the songwriter got it right when he said, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, it pours contempt on all of my pride. He understood it. He was essentially asking the same question, why? So it might be helpful if we processed through every single word of this psalm, and if we had a few weeks together, we might be able to do that. But it's also helpful for us to notice the progression of the psalm, of what's taking place in the life of the sufferer. And the first movement is this cry, a legitimate cry, why have you forsaken me? The second movement is confusion that comes out of the question, why? Uh, Holiness really does matter. It's the foundation of all justice. And so when this question is asked, why? It's a legitimate question because it appears as if the living holy God is being unjust and that needs to be dispelled. The confusion. Verse 3, yet you are holy. Holiness matters. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not, be, were not put to shame. And so the, the, this observation is true. It's just confusing. And as he's processing through, he's asking this question, Lord, you are holy. You are holy. What makes it okay for you to spurn a righteous man? And of course, we know the answer to that question. That's the second movement, confusion. But then he moves on to a third movement, which is consternation. That's where confusion leads to, verses 6 through 8. He's saying, I'm being unjustly treated even though I'm innocent. He says, you rescued all of them back in verses 3 through 5, but I'm a worm and I'm not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is the normal process or progression of suffering. We cry out. We say, I'm abandoned. Why is that? We're confused. Why is God allowing this to happen? And then we begin to feel consternation. Why is this happening? It is so not okay. And that's what's taking place. It's common. We see it everywhere, including in ourselves. Well, the journey of the sufferer touches all of us. (laughs) None of us are immune from it. It certainly touched David many times. He's at the mercy of King Saul. He hadn't done a thing against King Saul. He was a loyal soldier for him. Well, aside from rescuing Saul and all the army from Goliath, oh, that, 
that one, all right. But he's, he's running from King Saul. And then later he's at the mercy of Absalom. Some wrongdoing there with Bathsheba. But it's still an injustice what Absalom is doing. And yet David is experiencing this genuine suffering and loss and asking the question, why? Well, it certainly happened in the life of Jesus at Gethsemane. Uh, let this cup pass from me because I'm innocent. Why must I bear the cup at the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it happens in your life and in mine as well. Pretty much everyone who trusts in God will go through this journey. Job says in chapter 13, withdraw your hand from me. And the psalmist in Psalm 39 says, look away from me. Let me smile again before I depart and I am no more. Well, real sufferers have walked this pathway perhaps multiple times, crying out in our innocence, usually, maybe not, crying out in confusion when no help arrives, and then feeling consternation over the injustice of it all. But the good news begins when we look at verses 9 through 11, because the fourth movement is confidence. And here is the glory that the initial cry and the frustration of it all actually does lead to triumph. The innocent uh, sufferer begins to trust in the living God. We find it in verse 9, that great big, well, it's a little word, but it's a great big word in this passage, that word yet, Y-E-T, it's a big conjunction that says something else is going to take place, something is going to change because the sufferer is now filled with hope and expectation, yet... You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Something is changing in the temperament of the sufferer. And he says in verse 11, be not far from me for trouble is near and there's no one else who can help. And so for the sufferer, there's movement from the cry to confidence, and the psalmist is simply reminding us of one very, very important fact, and it's the fact of the question, that the right question to ask is not why. That's the question we do ask from the time we're able to speak, but the right question is always who. It's always who, and until we move from the why to the who, you and I will never be able to be triumphant in our suffering. Verse 10, you have been my God. And so in the midst of suffering, help comes when we ask the right question. Number one, Jesus, the righteous God, suffers. He suffers sacrificially, unjustly, but he also suffers triumphantly because he is finding hope even in the midst of the most horrible suffering. Number one, the righteous God suffers. Number two, Jesus, the righteous God, speaks. But he speaks with purity. He speaks with selflessness. He speaks triumphantly in the midst of suffering. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan or Bashan surround me. But you, again, who is trumping the why? But you, O Lord, be not far from me. This is the cry of the righteous soul throughout all of Scripture. We see it in verse 5 of Psalm 43. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Talk to myself. Talk to yourself. Why are you downcast? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior 
and my God. There's something to be said about speaking truth, especially or maybe even in the midst of suffering, because uh, speaking truthfully reorients us, and it saves us not only from wrong thinking, but it saves us from ourselves, and that's probably the greater battle. It just teaches us to speak truth to ourselves when we are asking questions like, why? Well, this is a funny story. It's true. It really did happen, I'm sad to say. But about 10, 11, 12 years ago, when Mr. Max was just a little guy, three or four years old, I don't know how old he was, we were out traveling somewhere on a little bit of a trip, and he was there in the back seat, in the car seat, and I was driving away. And I made a gracious, loving evaluation of a driver who was pretty much of a moron, to be honest. And so I kind of have gotten pretty good over the years at making assessments of other drivers and pretty good at speaking them right out loud when I'm driving because no one's there to hear what I say. Well, not normally. And I was just making a logical observation. It wasn't untrue. It actually was true what this particular human being did, moronic. And so I'm like, you're an idiot. Well, it got quiet in the car. And then I listen, and there's this still, small voice from the back seat. He wasn't being obnoxious. There was no guile. He was just making his own little objective, logical observation. And he says this, Poppy, maybe the guy in that other car thinks you're an idiot too. (laughs) We're just saying that speaking the truth reorients us. And it does so in a hurry. Well, in verses 12 through 21, we find the Lord speaking. He is speaking. He's already in the midst of suffering, and now he is speaking. But he speaks accurately. He speaks without accusation. All of his suffering was real. His portion was an awful portion on the cross. But he didn't speak out of a bitter heart or a complaining spirit. He simply is speaking truth. And so in verses 12 through 21, we find four truthful statements. And the first statement, verse 12 and following, is that the Lord Jesus really is alone. He's flanked by all of these oppressors, and yet he's all alone in the midst of those oppressors. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. It was all true. He's saying, none of these people are for me. I'm all alone in the midst of it. The second statement is in verse 14 and 15. The Lord Jesus is being drained of his life, literally, physically. He says, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. And my strength is dried up like a pot's herd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. And then he says this is interesting, you lay me in the dust of death. These statements are true. Jesus is experiencing death at its very worst. And Hebrews chapter 12, or 2 rather, reminds us that this wasn't just any old normal death. 
This was a spectacular death. This was a very consequential death. Number one, it was effectual. Verse 9, Hebrews 2, we see him, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death so that he might taste death for everyone. So it was effectual. It accomplished something fantastic. But make no mistake, it was also real. And in Hebrews 2, we read this also. It was fitting that him, he, for whom and by whom all things exist, should make the founder of their suffering, perf- or their salvation perfect through suffering. And we're just simply saying, just because his death was eternally effectual, we ought not to miss the point, you lay me in the dust of death. And it was real. Now, verse 15 is the turning point of the psalm. And here's why, because the focus begins to change and good stuff is starting to come down the pike. There's this hint of glory on the horizon uh, because in verse 15, the everlasting God rightly moves to front and center. The tide is beginning to turn. God, the ultimate judge, the sovereign one, the preeminent one is near and the sufferer is aware of that. So in verses 13 and following, it's them. They, for sure, are doing death to me. But in verse 15, it's also you, Yahweh, you lay me in the dust of death. And this is a huge change, and it's one of the glories of the gospel that suffering, all suffering for believers, is never random. It is never inconsequential. There really is an ultimate purpose in it all. God really is orchestrating the suffering, and this sufferer knows it. He sees it. He understands it. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we get a glimpse into what was taking place there. We read this great news. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. In other words, sin and suffering and death is not going to win the day, that there's something greater going on. You and I know that. Maybe we've heard it so many times that we yawn when we hear it. But there is going to come a day when we're very happy about this new creation going on. And the sufferer is beginning to understand this. And then in verse 18, 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God. All of it's from God. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God is making an appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the goodness of God for everyone who believes that for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so on the cross, God's goodness really is made manifest in this one way. Someone was willing to fight for you. And someone was willing to fight for me. And someone was willing to fight for us. And that's why we look to Jesus, right? The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, this past week, I was out to the cemetery, one of my favorite places to go to sit beside the railroad tracks and to study and read and pray and do some other things such as that. And as I was sitting there, this guy drove up in an SUV and pulled up quite a ways 
in front of me and went back, opened the back tailgate, and I noticed that there were a couple of cages in the back. And I thought, well, he's probably getting his dogs out to run the dogs, but they weren't dogs. They were birds. And I don't know what kind of birds they were. They weren't little birds like sparrows, and they weren't great big birds like eagles, but they were good-sized birds. Whatever they were, I'm really not sure. But he opened the one cage and out came, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten birds, and they started to fly around, but they all huddled together, and they're, they're just flying, and they're circling, and they're circling as if they're waiting for something. And so then he opens the second cage, and out comes seven, eight, nine, ten birds. I don't know how many there were. And they began to circle, and they all got together in this big group. And so they circled three or four times, and the next thing I know, they were all gone. I thought, that is cool. That's really fun, right? Because I don't know what happened. Maybe he rescued them from some nasty bird farmer. I'm not sure. But whatever happened, they were finally out of those cages, and they were finally free And they were finally glad about it. Good news. That's what the cross does for us. It finally liberates us from the sin and the penalty of sin. And it allows us to be free. I just enjoyed watching them fly. It was a cool thing. It was something that allowed them to soar. The same is true with us. Now, I know some of you are saying, now, Pastor, that's not all that cool of a story. Well... I think it is that cool of a story if you're one of those birds, right? And if you're not, okay, not a cool story, but perhaps you're like one of those birds, and perhaps you need the freedom that comes through the cross. Jesus Christ being raised from the dead, Romans chapter 6, will never die again, for the one who died has been freed. So verse 15 is the turning point. All right, the living God is now acknowledged in the midst of suffering. Verse 16, the direction begins to change. And everything is new and everything is kind of reversed. These statements also are true, but they're upward now. Jesus is not looking down saying, why have you abandoned me? He's saying something very different. And so the third statement goes on to describe Jesus as also surrounded by evil. Dogs encompass me, verse 16. A company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. He's still surrounded, right? They, 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 they're doing this, they're doing the other thing. But in verse 19, he now has reassurance. His eyes are upward and everything begins to change, including the pronouns, verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. And then finally in verse 21, the suffering one begins to lay hold of that certain hope. He's making peace with his suffering. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then he says this, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Notice the change in verbs in the tenses. Save me, that's the cry. You have already rescued me. That's the assurance Assurance, reassurance is given to the sufferer. He's just speaking truth to himself now. He's speaking accurately. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. 
course, this applies to us. Suffering applies to us. So speaking the truth applies to us. It has to touch us. Also, in the life of David, many times David sees hope in God. 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. And uh, Psalm 86, you are my God, Savior, servant who trusts in you. True in the life of Jesus, not my will, but thine be done. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in your life and mine, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful to death, Revelation 2, and I will give you a crown of life. And in Romans chapter 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present age really are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. We're speaking truth now, and the result of that is reassurance. Real sufferers have all traveled this particular pathway, alone in suffering, drained of strength, surrounded by evil or at least indifference. But the shift is real between save me and you have already rescued me. And that's where we need to go. We've been studying Romans chapter 8 for the adult Sunday school. I hope you've been here. It's really been rich and it's been deep and it's been really, really good. And in Romans chapter 8, there's this one verse 17 and 18. It says this, we are fellow heirs with Christ if, if, Indeed, we suffer with him. In this world, you will have trouble. But there's a promise that's tied to that suffering. And the promise is this. It's a purpose clause. It says, so that we may be glorified with him. The apostle is just seeing what the psalmist has already seen. It's simply this. Suffering is real, but we cannot afford to get lost in the suffering. Because there's something greater. There's an exhilarating end to the story. Because through the cross we finally are going to be free. Galatians chapter 5. For for, uh, freedom Christ has set us free. Now as I was studying through this passage. I just noticed that there were different names for God. The Old Testament has a number of different names. Three primary ones. El or Elohim. Yahweh and Adonai. And so verses, I thought this was really good, you don't have to agree, but this is free, so it doesn't matter. So verses 1 through 7 speaks of God as Elohim. It's that creator God, the plural of majesty, the one who's the most high God, who's the strong one, the powerful God, the God above whom nothing is too difficult. He can do all of things. Elohim, he's the one we cry out to when life is crushing us. We cry out to this God because he is the strong one. But then in verses 8 through 19, it shifts and the names change and it's Yahweh from that point on. Verse 18, commit yourself not to Elohim, but commit yourself to Yahweh. He's the God who is nearby and he is the covenant keeping God. He's the self-existing, unchanging, eternal God. Yahweh meets with those who suffer. So he moves to that name. And then at the end in verse 30, the only time this is mentioned, he uses the word for the name for God, Adonai, who is the majestic one. And he's the one who oversees the entire universe. And he is the one who superintends every single bit of life. So I just thought it was kind of interesting that in the beginning, the psalmist is crying out for Elohim, who is strong. Why are you forsaking me? And then he starts to draw near to Yahweh, who's close and who cares, and who's near to the sufferer, and then he moves to praising the God who's in charge of everything. Why? You have done it. 
That's why. Interesting. Three. Number one, Jesus the righteous God suffers. Number two, Jesus the righteous God speaks. Number three, third triumph, Jesus the righteous God saves. He saves and he does it gloriously. The declaration is given in verse 22 and 23. I will tell of your name, the name of Yahweh to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Something has clearly changed in the heart and in the perspective of the suffering one. And the reason for that is given in verse 24. Notice the change in the tense of the verbs. For he, the Lord, he has not despised or abhorred abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And so when the sufferer cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He comes full circle to say, he hasn't abandoned me. He hasn't despised me. He actually has drawn near to me. This is a God who saves, and he saves all who call on him in truth. I hope that you're one of those who call on him in truth. One of my favorite Spurgeon quotes, and you've probably heard me say this a dozen times, but I'll say it again anyway. He was asked this question once, what are some of the most what are going to be some of the most surprising things that happen when we're in heaven? And he said, number 1, it will be surprising that people that I thought would be there are not. Now that's a wake-up call for all of us. Number 2, it will be surprising that some people that I really didn't expect to be there, they're going to be there. That's good news. We're happy about that. But he says the most amazing thing by far is that I will be there. We get that. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregational a congregation. I will praise you. This is a God who saves. And so just as we suffer, we have to allow suffering to touch us. We have to speak truth. That needs to happen in our lives. So the work of salvation needs to touch us as well. In the life of David, a kingdom forever. In the life of Jesus, ascended to glory, a name above all names at the right hand of God. And in your life, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Those are good things. And we rejoice in all of them. And God is just saying, according to 1 Peter 1, don't be afraid. Christ also suffered for you. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. We just read that. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And what's the result of that? Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The suffering of the sufferer is not wasted. He suffers triumphantly, he speaks triumphantly, and he saves triumphantly. Of all that God could have done for us, nothing displays his infinite goodness to us as does the cross of Christ. Well, we conclude our study with uh, these passages from 25 and following. It's the grand finale 
It's the lightning, or it's the fireworks exploding and all the good things that are happening because of what Jesus has done for excellencies that all belong to Christ, loudly, boldly, clearly being proclaimed. And these are the ones as I read through them. Number one, the excellencies of praise Verse 25 and following, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Praising God because that first sentence no longer has the clout that it originally had. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The afflicted are going to eat and be satisfied. And those who seek him are going to praise him. Excellencies of praise. Number two, excellencies of proclaiming this great salvation. Verse 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Why? Verse 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations and he rules over everything else as well, including my difficulties. And then the excellencies of praise for anyone who faces death or for those who are doing well. 29, the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship and also before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Reference back to verse 15. You lay me in the dust of death and everyone who could not keep himself alive, which is all of us, right? All of us are going to, apart from the rapture, apart from the cross, taste the dust of death, and then the excellencies of people everywhere enjoying it forever and ever. Verse 30 Posterity, a spiritual remnant, you and I shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord, Adonai. In the coming generation, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. I almost want to stop, but I have a good story to tell. Someone's fighting for our soul. Well, the other day, I decided I'm going to have myself a donut. I was in a donut mood. Now, I can self-justify donuts because unlike you, I go get a donut, and I don't stuff the whole thing in my mouth. I just scrape the chocolate off the top with my teeth, and then I toss the rest of it. So I feel better about myself than you probably feel about yourself. And I take pride in that. You know, I look at you eating a donut and I say, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. Right? <laughs> the way it is. So judge me, I don't care. But anyway, I'm headed toward the donut rack and when I come around the corner, I see that there's a young lady there already in front of me, in my way, and she's going slowly. And I'm bothered by that because donuts belong to me at that point in the morning. And so I went and I just stood there with my grumpy face on and waited, tapping my grumpy foot. You know when you, you, know when you tap your grumpy foot? People understand. They get out of your way because they know you're very, very grumpy. Well, I knew I was grumpy and my heart was condemning me for it because here I am getting a donut for crying out loud. It's not like I'm going to eat dirt. I get to eat a donut. How wonderful is that? You know, and I, I, you've been there. You try to pull up, but it's like you just can't because you really want that donut. So she made me wait. 
I don't know, 10 whole seconds maybe? 15, I'm not sure. And then she noticed that I'm there and she turns around and she says, oh, I'm sorry. But she didn't get out of the way. She kept on looking for donuts and I sat there for another 10 or 15 seconds waiting and waiting and waiting. And she turns around the second time after she's gotten two donuts and she says, sorry, again, with a big smile on her face. Hey, ladies, not fair to fight with a smile on the face. You can't do that because we have no ammunition against that. But she took her donuts and she wandered off and I continued in my grumpy way. I mean, don't you realize that the king of donuts has been like holded, held back? So I finally get my donuts. So I walk away and I'm thinking to myself, all of a sudden these things start coming into my mind like, <clears throat> the Lord probably saw that. That's bad. And oh, <laughs> I'm preaching Sunday. <laughs> and what if Dorothy Donut walks in the back door and takes a seat back there during the sermon? I'm like, oh, I probably should do something about that, but I wasn't about to because I was grumpy, super grumpy. So I walked up to the um, cashier and got in line. Wouldn't you know? Who do you suppose walked right up behind me and stood there? Yeah, Dorothy Donut. Hey, look. Don't judge me, because I know you've done this too. Not only eating the donut part, but being the grumpy part. Um, by the way, some of you are saying, dude, being grumpy? Like that's the worst sin you ever commit? <laughs> All right, it's one of millions. That's how I act when I'm in a good mood. Imagine how I am when I'm bad. So, so let's speak the truth here about, about suffering and all that. And I'm not wandering off. This matters. The problem is not that I'm grumpy to an undeserving person and that's such a horrible thing. That's not what's horrible. You know what's horrible? I think that it's okay for me to be that way. That's what's really awful. Someone, someone has said that the true evidence of someone who's really a believer is that you allow God to walk into your life and expose your sin. That's how you know that you're saved. God gets freedom to walk in and, and unpack all of this stuff. Well, thinking that we're not bad is probably the worst sin of all. Next to this one, which reflects back to Psalm 22, and I am getting there, it's simply this, that we can look at the cross, we can look at what Jesus did for us on the cross, we can hear those words, he has done it, and still say, not me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really that bad. I don't need the cross, and I don't need Christ. That's the sin. And that's what the psalmist is trying to keep us from doing, because somebody fought for us on that cross. Well, the donut story's not over. So I'm standing at the checkout. She walks up. I'm like, I've got it. This is a redemptive moment. I have to take advantage of it. God brought her right next to me. I have to do something. So I turn to him and now, or turn to her, and now everybody's watching. There are all these people in line. Oh, I wonder what he's doing. Why is he bothering her? And why is she smiling? That's what they're really wondering. But she was. So I said to her, Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Double sorry. Because <laughs> she said it twice. I had to say it twice. There's really no excuse for my grumpiness. And now everybody's happy, especially me, 
because I'm preaching this morning. We're glad about that. But there's a bigger message, and this is the bigger message as we close. I wish this was me at my worst. I do. And you wish it was you at your worst. Psalm 22 reminds us that someone was willing to fight for us. The problem is so much deeper. It is so much more uh, catastrophic in us, the sin problem. For us, somebody suffered. He did it triumphantly. For us, somebody speaks, and he did it triumphantly. For us, someone also saves, and he does it triumphantly. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. No one else in history has done it. No one else in history ever will do it. Only one has done it. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends the psalm with those great words. He has done it. And we praise him for it. Father in heaven, we bow to acknowledge that you are everything you claim to be. That you are the living God. That you are the one who uh, not only provided a savior, but did the work of salvation that everything about you is excellent and praiseworthy and wonderful. And in our deepest soul, we say thank you. Thank you, because you've done it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.